before one of his fights against Evander Holyfield, Mike Tyson was asked by a reporter what his game plan was, how he would go about trying to counteract the plans of Holyfield, who was lighter and quicker, and Holyfield, who was kind of a heavy hitter, said, or sorry, Tyson, who was, who was a heavy hitter, said, everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Now, that might not seem directly related to Psalm 43, I don't think any of us are likely to be punched in the face by Mike Tyson anytime soon, but I do think that life oftentimes can punch us in the face, so to speak. And the question that we're trying to answer today is, how do we respond when trials come our way? What's, what's our, our, uh, our instinct? You know, Tyson's point of your plan goes out the window when you get punched in the face is saying, as soon as that happens, you just fall back on your instincts. So for us, what is our, our spiritual instinct, our spiritual reflex when trials come? Is it perhaps that we would move away from God and maybe blame him or be angry with him, doubt, maybe reject that he's here altogether? Or is it that we would run to God as the one that we see as the most essential thing in our life, despite pain or difficulty or despair or anger, do we look to God for help? The question that obviously I'm asking, but also that I think this psalm speaks to is, what does a distinctly Christian response to suffering look like? And I'm not saying that this is the all-encompassing answer. This is everything that we must do anytime trials come. But I do think that the psalmist is going to give us three very clear, very helpful steps to engage with God in our suffering. So the three steps that we'll see in this psalm today, and they'll follow really straight through the psalm, are entrust yourself to God, ask God to lead you to himself, and preach the gospel to yourself. Entrust yourself to God. Ask God to draw you near to himself. And preach the gospel to yourself. So the first step of that. The psalmist shows us. Is that we ought to entrust ourselves to God. So I'll read verses 1 and 2. If you follow along with me. Vindicate me O God. And defend my cause. Against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So I think in these two verses, the psalmist is laying out for us the two causes of his suffering. He's got both physical circumstances and spiritual circumstances. The physical, of course, uh, he's got oppression from his enemies. And then spiritual is this sort of wrestling with his doubts. And I think we can probably all relate to this in some degree. Uh, anytime there's trials in our life, whether that's work or relationships or family or disease or sickness or whatever it may be, there's oftentimes a physical hardship, but there's also wrestling against God. Why, why is this happening to me? So I think the psalmist is, is helping us to see how both of these things are interacting in his own trials. So the physical circumstances, the oppression from his enemies, he's got these ungodly people and this unjust and deceitful man, and they're mocking him, they're attacking him. If you remember last week in Psalm 42, they're asking him, where is your God? In his trial, in his distress, they're trying to get him to reject God altogether. He's not here. He's not helping you. Forget about him. 
response. They're trying to lead him away. And the response of the psalmist is to ask God to rise up and come to his aid. He says, vindicate me. Maybe another translation would say, judge me. He's asking that God would punish the wicked and justify the righteous. That's what vindicate means. Persecute the wicked, justify the righteous. He's confident if, if God comes and he, uh, he does this work of judging, he will see that his enemies are wicked. They're opposing and oppressing him and that he is right. He'll be justified and judged as right. But the second thing, the spiritual circumstance we see is his wavering confidence. Notice the waffling here. He says, you are the God in whom I take refuge. And that's crucial because he has that rock solid hope. But notice, even though he does have confidence, he is struggling against doubts. He says, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? It's almost like a split personality. He's, he knows that God is his refuge. And yet that truth isn't lining up with how he feels in the moment. It's not lining up with his current experience. He feels as though God has rejected him, even though he knows that God is his refuge, the source of safety, the source of strength. I think we can probably all relate to this feeling to some degree, we know God's promises that, that God is loving and kind. He is our peace and our hope. And yet, it doesn't always feel like he's with us. And particularly, he doesn't feel like he's with us when we need him most. So I think of the man in, uh, in Mark 9. So in Mark 9, there's a father. His son is oppressed uh, by an unclean spirit. So it's just a young boy. And the father says that this unclean spirit has often thrown the boy into water and into fire to try to kill him. So you have a father who is desperately trying to save his son's life. He's trying to find any hope he can. He comes to the disciples. The disciples of Jesus can't help. They can't cast out the demon, so he turns to Jesus as a final hope. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion and heal him. So the very fact that he came to Jesus tells us that he knows Jesus is the solution. And yet, in his distress and in his fear, he's struggling against his doubts. So Jesus, very sharply, he, he challenges him. He says, if I can... All things are possible for those who believe. The father responds candidly, I do believe, help my unbelief. So what, what's happening here is that for the father and for the psalmist and for us, oftentimes, the objective reality of God's presence is swallowed up by the subjective feelings of our circumstances. So John Piper has a really helpful quote here on, on how we ought to understand the relationship of our feelings and the truth. He says, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, and it happens every day in some measure, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God 
purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. If you're someone who's prone to this sort of feeling of knowing God's love, but not feeling God's love, I think this is a really good prayer for us. We, we, can, we can pray, we, God, purify my feelings so that they are in line with the truth. And if you notice, that's exactly where the psalmist turns next. So the second step uh, along this, how, how are we to respond in a desperate moment or perhaps a, a desperate season? The psalmist walking in suffering teaches us that the second step should be asking God to bring us to himself. Look at verses three and four. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with a lyre. Oh God, my God. So this second stage is where this Psalm becomes distinctly Christian. The first section is somebody who's suffering against opposition and praying God to deliver him. Anybody is likely to pray that prayer, Christian or not. In a, in a moment of desperation with enemies surrounding you, just to say, God, I don't even know if you're there or you're real or you're listening, but if you are, help me out of this spot that I'm stuck in. This is not that. In fact, I think that this part of the prayer would be uh, probably silly to somebody who's not a Christian. Why would you ask for this when you really need to just get out of the, the hole you're in? See, he moves away from his physical requests and he turns to asking God for what I think he's saying he needs the most, to be brought into God's presence. Now, if you were here last Sunday, you know that as we're walking through the Psalms of the sons of Korah from chapters 42 to 49 of Psalms, that there's a sequential nature to them, that 42 and 43, where we are right now, is really low. It's very sad. He's very much in the pit. He's struggling against opposition. But by the end of these, in 47, 48, 49, the tables have turned. He's much, much lighter. And I think the reason for that growing hope is not ultimately deliverance from his enemies. I think it's in being welcomed into the presence of God. And we see that. If you look ahead to chapter 45, there's a, a, a praise of the true king. And you can look in 46 that there's this city, the holy habitation of the most high. There's a river that makes glad the city of God. So it's this vision of being in God's presence that lightens his mood. What about you? When you're in the pit, when, when you're in despair, is this your first instinct? Is this the spiritual reflex? Verse one, there's a request for vindication and deliverance, the, the request to be removed from the circumstances that he finds himself in. But above that, I think beyond that, what he needs most is to be brought into the presence of God. I think this is such a good model prayer for us. Uh, I think as Christians that we fall into a lot of different errors. I think it's really easy for us to fall into a lot of stuff, but two very obvious ones that relates to this Psalm are to over-spiritualize and so to ignore any sort of physical suffering. I'm not gonna worry about the fact that I, I'm hurt or I have enemies opposing me. I'm not gonna worry about that. I'm just gonna focus on spiritual things. I think 
that's wrong. I think the other side of that coin is to overemphasize the physical and neglect the treasure in heaven that is laid up for us. And Psalm 43 is a good correction for us because it teaches us we should be praying for both of these things. It's a model of pleading with God for vindication from circumstances and pleading with God to give us our spiritual needs. We need more of God. So it's good for us to pray for both of these things when we're struggling. And and notice what he's actually praying for here. He says, send out your light and your truth. He's asking God for two things, light and truth. And that those things in the midst of suffering, he's he's feeling dark, things are unclear, they're, they're cloudy and confusing. And what he needs is God's help. If you remember back in Psalm 42, I already mentioned this, that the opponents were saying, where is your God? Who is your God? Those attacks, I think, have left him confused. And so he's turning to his refuge, his his stronghold, his strength, and he's asking for light to lead him. Because that's what we need. When when the darkness is closing in, we need light to, to help us to see. And not just light, but we need God's truth. When the light comes, it helps us to see the truth. So one pastor says it this way, just like physical light helps physical eyes see physical reality, so spiritual light helps spiritual eyes see spiritual realities. Ephesians chapter one, verse 18 says the same thing. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What we need is God's light to reveal to us what is our true hope. I think we could probably reword this whole prayer and and say, God, right now it's dark. Right now I feel alone and I feel lost, but I know that you're there because you have always been my refuge. So now don't let me fall victim to the lies of my enemies who are saying that you're not with me. Send your light so that I can see what is true, that you are here. We see that that prayer, this, this second step continues. He moves from following that light and that truth straight into the presence of God. And we get a scene of this worship in heaven that we will experience when God's light does come and it brings you out of the pit and into his courts. All of the fear and the pain melt away because of the majesty of God. So as the hymn goes, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. So when God brings us to his holy hill and brings us to his dwelling, to the altar of God, we're going to be with him there. So those three titles, holy hill, dwelling, altar of God, I think this is a typical way that Psalms uses poetic language. Uh, It's three words. They're not synonyms, per se, but they're three titles that kind of point to the same idea that this is the presence of God that he is looking forward to. Uh, Holy Hill, most specifically, uh, that's used in the book of Daniel. It's used all throughout Psalms, actually, but, but specifically in the book of Daniel, uh, in chapter nine, it says, bring me to Jerusalem, to your holy hill. The idea, this is God's city. Bring me to yourself, God. Bring me to your dwelling, And he wants to go to the altar, the altar, of course, where where the sins would be atoned for, where 
Those who were unable to be welcomed into the presence of God because of their sin, those sins are paid for and were freely able to stand before a loving God because of the forgiveness of those sins. This is what the psalmist wants. He wants to be in God's presence and be justified. And the presence of God doesn't seem like it's just an upgrade from where he is now. It's not, then I will go to God because that's a little bit better than the oppressor's. He says he's going to the one who is his exceeding joy. Christ Kevin, I hope that we are a church that is known for finding our exceeding joy in God and looking forward to our exceeding joy, just like the psalmist does. Being in that place with God, being in his dwelling and on his holy hill, this isn't a place where things are a little bit better. This is a place where there are no enemies and no darkness or confusion or lies or despair, no oppressors. All of those things are replaced by exceeding and unending and unwavering and uninterrupted joy. And the response that the psalmist has into being in God's presence, who is his exceeding joy, is to sing his praises. He says he's going to pull out his lyre, his harp, and he's going to start playing some music and worshiping God because he's happy there. This is what we have to look forward to. But before we get too excited, remember that we are still in Psalm 43. The psalmist isn't already experiencing deliverance. He's looking forward to it. He hasn't experienced it yet. The, the ungodly, the deceitful enemies are still oppressing him. They're still antagonizing him. His own internal dialogue is still conflicted as he's wrestling against his fears and his doubts. And I think it's good for us to look at somebody who is still struggling and how they're dealing with their struggles. There's not a bow on his story yet. I don't think any of us would be calling him as our next motivational speaker the old Saturday Night Live skit of the man in the van down by the river, that skit is funny because he's a horrible motivational speaker. He's still struggling. See, we, we don't tend to look to people like this as our help. And yet I think this is exactly what we need. See, things aren't looking up. And so because they're getting better, he's acting much more hopeful than he was before. He's suffering. And in his suffering... He's even now turning to God. See, that's helpful because it means that for us, we don't have to wait until our situation improves to trust and hope in God. We don't have to wait till step two and three and four are done till we can hope again. What we need to do when these sorts of trials come is remind ourselves of God's promises. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And that's the third step of this psalm. So in verse five, the psalmist repeats the refrain uh, that he's already spoken twice in Psalm 42. I'll read that. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the two steps so far, notice, have been vertical. He's entrusting himself to God and he's asking God to bring him to himself so both of these are addressing God, and now he turns to speak to himself. It 
It's like he's stepping in like an out-of-body experience and he's, he's diagnosing the cause of his suffering. He's prescribing the cure. His cause, his hope is misplaced. The cure is placing his hope rightly in God. And this isn't just like a, a wild guess, like a, a medical drama where there's a whole bunch of crazy things and then at the very end they guess something and it happens to be the right answer. And he knows that this is what his soul needs because he's been cured by this sort of medicine in the past. He says, I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. See, he knows that the oppression of his enemies will ultimately be relieved as he places his hope in God. I think many of you are probably familiar with the story Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Uh, this is a, an allegory to the Christian life. So uh, the main character's name is Christian, and it follows him walking towards the celestial city, the place where his God is. And on the journey, it's long, and there's a lot of scenes where he's just walking through the, the typical struggles of the Christian life, and he meets some good friends and some not-so-good people. And as he and one of his friends, whose name is Hopeful, are almost to the celestial city, they get off the path, and they get taken in to Doubting Castle. The owner of the castle's name is Giant Despair. And I'm just going to read a couple of things here from, uh, from Pilgrim's Progress. But over the course uh, of a few days of being in Doubting Castle with Giant Despair, uh, the giant beats him and hopeful mercilessly. He tells them that he's not going to feed them. He's going to keep them locked in cages and that they're going to die here. And so what they ought to do is just kill themselves. So they would just put themselves out of their own misery. So Christian and hopeful are... Uh, confused and they're feeling like they, they're lost a bit. They, they need to be saved out of this. And so this is how they respond. About midnight, Saturday night, Christian and Hopeful began to pray and continued almost until break of day. Then Christian suddenly broke out in amazement. What a fool, what a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon when I might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a key in my bosom called promise, which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. Hopeful responds, that is certainly good news, my brother. Get out your key and try it. Then Christian took the key of promise, pushed it into the lock of the dungeon door, and the bolt fell back and the door came open. They walked out into the castle. Then they went to the door leading to the castle yard. The key opened that door also. Now they came to the great iron gate leading outside. The lock to the gate was exceedingly difficult, yet they unlocked it and pushed the gate open and made their escape. The prisoners ran to the king's highway where they were safely beyond despair's jurisdiction. Friends, this is how we find relief from our despair, from our doubts. And when I'm talking about relief, I'm not talking about the kind of faith that says, well, if I just have enough faith and all my trials will be wiped away, the diseases won't affect me anymore and people's mockery won't bother me anymore. I don't think that's a biblical understanding of, of faith. I don't think it's rational either. No, what, what I think is happening here is uh, both what Christian is doing and what the psalmist is doing is he's pointing to the sure promises of God to provide him with hope. The promise is that, that God has sent his son into the world to save us from our sins. And that 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2 says it this way. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. See, when I say preach the gospel to yourself, that's kind of a Christianese phrase, I think. But it means reminding ourselves of these good promises that God sees us and has forgiven us in Christ. And that it's in these sorts of promises that we find our, our rest, our hope. And that there is no satisfactory rest or satisfactory hope in anything that's not rooted ultimately in God. One pastor said that hopes that are rooted found, uh, foundationally in anything other than God are hollow, they're empty, and they're like bubbles that look beautiful for a time but will pop when any pressure comes. That's why we root ourselves in this sure hope. That's why the psalmist can do it, and that's why we can as well. I want to close just by reading uh, a quote from John Piper. Uh, in February of 2006, he preached a sermon. Uh, it was going to be the last sermon he preached before a surgery and a five-month sabbatical because in January of that year, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. He had had a surgery to remove the prostate and he was getting tests and stuff. And he had another surgery lined up the next week. And uh, he wanted to give his church, Bethlehem Baptist Church, an update on how the surgery was going, what, what sort of hope he had. Uh, and he talks about this, this interaction he had with his doctor who was trying to provide Piper with, with hope as he went into the surgery. I think it's really great perspective for us. He says, the doctor sat down with me on Wednesday and laid out the pathology report. It confirmed the presence of cancer in the removed prostate, but also confirmed that it had not penetrated the capsule as far as they could see and that there was no evidence of cancer in the lymph nodes. And then he said that of the men with these scores and with this surgery, 94% are cancer-free in 10 years, and 6% are not. And inside my soul was this quiet and happy response. Thank you, Lord, for that. And I know at the bottom of my heart that whether I'm in the 94% or the 6% is totally in your hands where I am happy to rest and not in the odds. Friends, this is the sure hope that we have, whether there's trials or disease or despair or loss or pain or suffering, whatever may come our way in this life. Our hope is that we are in the hands of God and we can rest there securely. John 10 says that there is no one who will snatch us out of the Father's hands. This is the rest that we have if we're in Christ. This is the rest that we can point others who are struggling to and they can find rest as well. Just take a, a moment and consider the majesty of God, the, the rest that we can find in him and I'll pray for us to close. Father, we want to hold secure to your promises like Christian, we want to understand that your promises are what will give us deliverance. 
And so, Father, we pray that when we are walking through difficulties and we know that we will, we pray that you would give us great hope in yourself. This Romans says that the God of peace would fill us with, or the God of hope would fill us with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may be people who abound in hope. Lord, let that be true of this church. Let that be true of all of those in here who are at times struggling to believe that God is there and cares for them. Lord, let us see you as a sure hope that we can find great confidence and great rest in. Help us to be faithful to you, we pray in Christ's name, amen.